This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. The title of the book, We Are Spirit, an immortal love story that spans two worlds. And the authors, Kenneth J. Comerford and Grace Diane Comerford, and Kenneth joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kenneth. Hello, Steve. Glad to be here. Great to have you with us. Your book, We Are Spirit, is a work of spiritual insight, as you write this, based on conversations between you and your departed wife, Grace Diane. Uh, She began telepathically communicating with you after she passed away in 2012. So we're going to get into the details of how this all happened and and uh, some of the things that you've learned from her. But before we do that, uh, Kenneth, tell us a little bit about your background and, of course, uh, your experience with your wife that led up to writing this book with her. With her. Thank you. Okay. Um, well... I was a Korean veteran going to Arizona State University on the GI Bill. I had finished my first year when we met at the on 4th of July, 1958, uh, at a party uh, hosted by one of my uh, friends from summer school. I was in summer school. Diane had just completed a year as a uh, on a, an art scholarship at Phoenix College, and we had a mutual friend, and uh, she came with him to the party, and that was July 4th, 1958. Uh, We recognized fairly quickly that the other was somebody special, and uh, I... I, uh, got her phone number and phoned her for a date the following Saturday. And mind you, this was in July, and we were married on August 21st, her 19th birthday. We just clicked and always have. We've had uh, uh, 54 years together in the physical world, and we're still together because she is present with me virtually all the time. And I uh, uh, realize that we live in a dimension of time and space, so it may be difficult for some people to conceptualize the idea uh, that time and space don't make any difference where she is. But during our lifetime, I uh, finished school and she helped put me through. Um, I got my bachelor's degree. I wanted to go to law school and um, I had to ha- had to work my way through. So I got a job as a probation officer in Riverside County, Riverside, California. 
And I had a probation load of convicts as well as a uh, court responsibility for investigative reporting to the judge. And that was throughout the county, justice, the peace, and everything. I, uh, at any rate, I met a man who was a doctor, an MD, and uh, he was a motivational speaker and very positive in his attitude and so forth. I invited him to speak to a group of my probationers, and I couldn't order them to come to the meeting, but I invited them to and told them why I thought they should. So maybe 20-some would show up. I did not do the meetings on the uh, court grounds. The jail was up above us, the mortuary across one, one street, and the Riverside Police Department across the other. And I took us to a more uh, upbeat, uh, brand-new library in Riverside. And Dr. – his name was Fred Andrews, and I don't know if he's living or not. I haven't. I didn't use his last name in the book, anyway. Dr. Fred Andrews had learned uh, uh, medical hypnosis to alleviate pain. And he was a motivational speaker on the side. He, uh, he did a great job motivating people, and, and he got into subjects like uh, subconscious mind and higher superconscious mind. And uh, during the course of things, he invited me to participate in a re reincarnation research group. Long story short, I learned to uh, do hypnotic regressions from him, an MD, and he felt that uh, having a deputy probation officer who represented the court um, added credibility, even though he was an MD. Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, reincarnation was still not generally accepted. So we we got into that. As the years went by, I was recruited to the American Cancer Society, which may seem strange because the man that recruited me, the field rep, I told him, "Hey, I'm used to working with tough guys, not little old ladies." And Anyway, he said they were modernizing, needed my ability to uh, uh, do management, bioobjectives, planning, etc. So I went with the California division, moved up to San Francisco. Um, Diane continued going to school part-time. Um, we lost a child, an infant, uh, before we left uh, Tempe, Arizona. And then... Uh, it was six years before our oldest son, Kevin, was born, and uh, he was born in Tucson Medical Center uh, just before we moved to Riverside. Then we moved up to the Bay Area where we were headquartered, and eventually we moved to Sacramento where our younger son, Brian, was born. And Brian was born in 1971, six years after Kevin was born in 1964. Um, we, Diane in particular, uh, endorsed the Montessori method of uh, teaching them, and both of them knew how to draw, how to write, how to spell, 
how to um, do a lot of things that you don't learn until first or third grade. So they got a jump, and they're both high IQ, and Diane was very intelligent. I'm a member of the Mensa High IQ Society. I graduated uh, cum laude from Arizona State and a master's degree from University of Northern Colorado, cum laude. And uh, I took many courses in the University of California uh, system, one of which uh, impressed me with a new management style called uh, human resources management. And it's not dictatorial or authoritarian. It tends to draw the best out of people. So I uh, eventually uh, left the American Cancer Society. I became involved with two colleges, uh, Paul Smith's College of the Adirondacks in northern New York was Dean of Development. And then uh, we moved to uh, Abilene, Texas, McMurray University. And Brian was college age and got his degree uh, since I was the vice president for institutional advancement there. So I've had responsible positions. I've also learned from um, some religious affiliations. Uh, I my last five and a half years professionally, I was the director of plan giving for the Archdiocese of Houston. They call it Galveston, Houston. It started in Galveston, but the Archdiocese. So I worked for the Archbishop and uh, was specialized in tax-free charitable giving which helped them to raise several million dollars for a downtown cathedral in Houston. Um, however, a new uh, chief financial officer did not see eye to eye with me about waiting. He wanted the money now. And uh, after the campaign, capital campaign ended, uh, I was not too politely allowed to leave. And... Uh, it was called reorganization, but at that point I was 70 and a half. This was in 2004. So we uh, moved from Houston out to an area by Lake Conroe, and uh, Diane became quite ill, heart ailments, uh, two aneurysms, kidney failure, um, and her last... Uh, uh, hospitalization was in August um, 2011, and uh, she was in the hospital for a month, had stent surgery, um, all the arteries to her heart, and um, they didn't want to open her chest again. She'd already been uh, chest cracked three times. Mm. So then... Uh, she struggled through uh, physical therapy, had to go to a nursing home. That was in the fall. In the spring, there was a problem, leakage in the uh, aorta. She had an aortal aneurysm, uh, which was stented. And uh, in February, she went in for another week. They uh, felt they had mended it. 
Brian visited us from Colorado to uh, Conroe, Texas, and uh, that was on St. Patrick's Day 2012. She passed six weeks later in the Conroe Regional Medical Center uh, ICU. I was there while they had her on respirator. She specifically did not want artificial life support. She had had a miserable nine years of surgeries and uh, being an invalid. She was just a wonderful person. Everybody loved her that knew her, and uh, she did some wonderful things as a volunteer uh, for the American Cancer Society while I was the staff leader. And uh, we met celebrities across the country. Some of them are gone now, of course, Steve Allen. Uh, Amanda Blake was one who was a favorite, loved Diane. And uh, Amanda Blake played Miss Kitty in the Gunsmoke series right. that was on for a number of years. So Diane was very active. She was very beautiful young woman. Um, she looked a great deal like Kim Novak. And uh, if you remember or have seen pictures of Kim right. Novak, right. when you see the picture of Diane and the book, uh, and when we were married, uh, you'll see the resemblance. Very beautiful blonde. Um, she was just committed to me no matter what I did my whole uh, career, and I often uh, had difficulties with the managers and the university presidents. The reason is they they don't like to change. They don't like to move. They don't like to do new things. And that's the way we've always done it, is what I kept running into. So I wasn't fulfilled and therefore changed jobs fairly often. But uh, uh, I do have a reputable past and uh, jobs of uh, responsibility, and I've always been personally liked, and uh, Diane certainly was. Tell us how you communicate with Diane. I think everyone really is interested in, you know, is this strictly telepathic or how how do you communicate with her? You say you feel her near you most of the time. Yes, I can. Uh, somewhere in scripture it says you can call and the saints will answer, God will answer something. Well, at her memorial... I read a poem adapted from uh, uh, another person's poem, and the last two lines say, uh, uh, when tomorrow starts without me, don't think I'm far away, for every time you think of me, I'm right here in your heart. I, the first stanza ends, don't think I'm, we're far apart. For every time you think of me, I'm right here in your heart. Well, that's what happened. I It was uh, 15 months after she passed. I walked outside my apartment here. I had moved back to uh, Denver to be close to Brian and his family. 
And uh, I walked outside on what would have been our 54th anniversary and said, looked up at the heavens and told her how much I still loved her and uh, how much I missed her. And I heard, not not really heard, but I sensed, or I, I knew she spoke to me and said, I love you too, Ken. And we began communicating that way. And uh, in one radio interview I had, I was asked if I'm clairaudience. And no, I wouldn't say I'm clairaudient because that means you can hear sounds from spirit. It's more as if uh, we were of one mind, one heart, and this sense of oneness has also allowed me to speak to my father, my spirit guide, Marcus, whom I've known since the second century, Rome, where he and I were both in government. And uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, that was August 21, so September 3rd, we made an appointment to sit down, I would sit down at the keyboard, computer, and we would talk, and I would write out what we talked about. Well, after a couple of weeks of this, after uh, daily con uh, communication, some of the uh, things we were printing out, like uh, there's nothing but love in the spirit world, and there is no hell... Uh, there is separation of sorts, but that's uh, due to consciousness, and everyone uh, experiences the spiritual state based on their consciousness. Consciousness is primarily the, your uh, state of heart and mind in regard to love for your fellow man. So, as that developed, and I brought Brian in on it, and uh, we we thought that there was a possibility of a book. So uh, we made a regular schedule. I had plenty of experience studying metaphysics and with different churches, not only the Roman Catholic, but I, uh, I favor the Unity Church of Christianity. Uh, I have been a member of... Uh, the Episcopal Church for a number of years, and uh, I've had exposure to the Methodists through McMurray University and uh, also through uh, Texas Military Institute, where I served as a Catholic campaign director. So I, we don't chat, but anytime I want to talk to her, she's there, and I just say, Diane or sweetheart. And, yes, Ken, I'm here. And uh, I may have a question, in which case it's a question and answer kind of conversation. But when we were sitting at the keyboard and, and writing it all down, it was not Q&A. It was more uh, as if we were both writing it um, with each other. And I don't know how to really explain that so that everybody can understand it, because I know this is not everybody's experience, but it is ours.
And we wanted to share our experience. We do not recommend uh, any religious affiliation, but we feel that all of them end up at the same place. Uh, Brian has studied Buddhism, and of course, uh, Christ talked about the Father within, and Christ's consciousness is uh, consciousness of love, the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and Buddha, of course, uh, stressed enlightenment and meditation, which is like prayer and uh, being silent part of the time. But um, he also developed the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment, which is similar to the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes of Christianity. So these uh, daily sessions uh, went on for September, October into November, and then uh, Brian uh, did research and wrote an informative uh, introduction to the book, and found that it was not all that uncommon to communicate with spirit. The, uh, and of course, uh, a lot of people pray. The unique feature of our uh, uh, immortal love story is that we answer each other. We ask and answer. We think together and uh, answer other questions together. Our idea was to share sort of an ethic or art of living. And my guide, Marcus, uh, had studied with Epictetus in Rome. In Rome, uh, he was a philosopher who wrote the book, The Art of Living, Epictetus. So this little group uh, on the spirit side uh, wanted to impress those of us that live in this world that love is more important than anything else. Love is what it's all about in one form or another. Agape love, you know, it's not just romantic love. It's agape love. It is respect for our fellow man and for the world of nature. All of nature should be respected and loved. All of mankind and I, we recognize there are some bad guys out there, but we've all been bad guys. We've all reincarnated many times. And she wanted people to understand that there is reincarnation and karma. There is an evolution of soul. The way you improve your consciousness is to love and commit yourself to goodness. Well, we appreciate you joining us, Kenneth, to share such a special story about your love for your wife and how this love continues on, and both of you writing your book, We Are Spirit, an immortal love story that spans two worlds, Kenneth J. Comerford and Grace Diane Comerford. Kenneth, what's the best way to get your book? Um, the book is available on Amazon. Or you can contact Author House, and um, Amazon does not have a buyback policy, so they don't put the 
book into Barnes and Noble and so forth, um, Author House does. And um, Author House is uh, uh, also providing this uh, synopsis of the book to Hollywood review and for the purpose of adaptation to a documentary. Wonderful. So the best way, the easiest way, is uh, Amazon, but you can also contact Author House. Well, thank you so much, Kenneth, for joining us on Author Talk. Well, you're entirely welcome, and I hope that uh, this information does people some good. We want to share our experience, and we don't preach, although uh, we do share Diane's knowledge of the afterworld and the focus on consciousness and love. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Concussionology, Redefining Sports Concussion Management for All Levels, and the author is Dr. Harry Karasides, and Harry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Harry. Hey, thanks for having me here. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, concussions, we hear about them so much, especially in the sports world, football especially, and yet younger and younger people seem to be getting concussions, don't they? Yeah, that's so true. I think that the athletes are getting bigger, stronger, faster, and this may be contributing to the fact that uh, the younger kids are starting to have more concussions. Will you call your book a guidebook, the latest knowledge and best practices, as you put it, for preventing and detecting concussions aided with online mobile technology and providing a recovery protocol? We certainly want to talk about your protocol for returning the athlete back to gameplay or the classroom. Before we get into the details, Harry, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. Thanks. I wrote this book. I wrote this book because of uh, the lack of information in a, in a single place for parents, athletes, coaches, even medical professionals to get an idea of what concussion injury is, especially as it pertains to sports. And I wanted to get the word out there. There's a lot of lack of uh, good information about concussion in the space. I'm a neurologist. I've been in practice for 25 years. 
I've uh, cared for concussion injury and in athletes probably over a thousand times. And through this experience, I wanted to share what I've learned about concussion injury and bring it to the people. Interesting that Hollywood's coming out with a new movie around Christmas time, Concussion with Will Smith. So it's certainly on people's minds. That's so exciting. And I really am, uh, uh, I'm very excited that this movie is coming out because it's really going to raise awareness in the public's eye. Uh, but at the same time, it's going to raise a lot of questions. A lot of people will want to know more about concussion injury. And we'll be able to find that in my new book, Concussionology. This may sound like a book just for the medical professional, but it's for parents and, of course, all the folks involved as coaches and athletic directors and trainers. It covers everyone. You're so right. The book is really written in very plain language. It's not a textbook. It's more of a guidebook for athletes, parents, athletic trainers, even healthcare professionals to um, be able to reference uh, the important information about concussion, especially as it applies to sport concussion. And your book starts out with your own story. You got a concussion. Yeah, that was a, a funny story retrospectively. At the time, it caused a lot of concern amongst uh, my parents and my friends, but Yes, in the book, I tell the story of how I got a concussion while I was playing a friendly game of football and uh, kind of lost a weekend of uh, memory. Uh, and it's been uh, sort of a, a joke in the family ever since. But at the same time, it raises the, the serious nature of concussion uh, that, um, that people don't recognize. I think we all understand that the brain is fragile when you watch sports and some of these hits, oh my goodness, to the head, you wonder how, I mean, you think the person is going to be killed. I mean, they get hit so hard. How, how does the brain function and to be able to withstand such blows and at the same time, obviously there's a, a you can't cross a certain line. So true. You know, the brain is like the yolk of an egg. And uh, when when the there's trauma to the head, it's uh, it's much like the yolk getting scrambled inside, but the eggshell remaining intact. And that's very similar to what's happening in a concussion injury. In fact, uh, I refer to the concussion injury as a brain sprain, not to minimize the injury, but to point out that there is a recovery process that goes along just as the recovery process you would go through if you sprained your ankle. When is a concussion not a concussion? That's a very interesting question. A concussion is not a concussion in many aspects. I go through this in my book where uh, other conditions that could be re the result of trauma can look like a concussion but not really be a concussion. Let me give you an example. For instance, uh, a person may have an injury to the upper part of the neck, and this may cause pain, and the pain may radiate into the head. And the athlete may call this a headache, but in fact, it's really the injury to the neck that's the problem. Another example would be uh, vertigo. Sometimes you get vertigo because of the uh, traumatic injury to the inner ear. Now, that is not really the brain that's being injured at that point, but the inner ear. 
that is giving the symptoms of vertigo but not really being representative of a uh, brain injury or concussion. So what are the signs, the symptoms of a concussion? You know, not every concussion is the same. And so people present with various different symptoms ranging from uh, confusion, disorientation, headache, vertigo, uh, a deer in the headlights type of stare, uh, emotional changes, anger, um, uh, down in blue moods, uh, sleep problems are very rampant in concussion injury, uh, but no two concussions are alike. And in your book, you debunk common concussion myths. You talk about the neuroscience, uh, cognitive neuroscience about all this. Uh, you talk about brain mapping. I, I'm looking at your table of context. Now, the, I think we all know what, what the two-minute warning is. Uh, you know, we all know they, that all the TV networks take their commercial break right there. But you've got a kind of different slant on that. The two-minute warning when it comes to a concussion, what is that? Well, you know, you have to take the two minutes out to really uh, uh, assess the athlete. Not not assess the athlete in two minutes, but the idea that you you want to take time uh, to thoroughly evaluate this athlete. Take the break. Take the athlete out of the game or out of the practice. Let them rest a little bit. Observe their symptoms as they're on the sidelines. And then go through a structured uh, evaluation uh, that uh, characterizes the state of the athlete while he's on the sideline. I've developed a sideline assessment protocol uh, through the uh, excellent brain program. This is a, a program that is a fully integrated concussion management program that can be found online at excellentbrain.com, xlntbrain.com. And this uh, program includes a sideline assessment tool that's on a mobile app. And the mobile app uh, will guide a responsible party, an adult on the sideline, to, in a step-by-step fashion, uh, evaluate a potentially injured uh, athlete. Well, you've had some great reviews. I'm reading one here. Dr. Karasides explains the brain in user-friendly terms, including how it functions normally and how it responds in con- concussion. This book is a clear call to action for players, parents, coaches, and loved ones. And that's really... I think all of us who love sports and, you know, you love the big hit, but then you're also really concerned about the athlete, especially when they're so young and it really at all ages. So how is this book a clear call to action? Well, you know, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the big hits. You know, uh, the big hits are, are so spectacular. And, and uh, in fact, you see uh, video reels that are put together of all the big hits. Uh, in the sports uh, world, and they're entertaining, but at the same time, uh, sometimes we forget that uh, injury occurs with the big hits. And and the one thing that I want to put out there is that we don't want the game to end. We don't want the game to uh, dwindle out uh, and make it not exciting. But at the same time, we want to prioritize brain health over gameplay. And so there has to be a cultural shift that prioritizes 
brain health over gameplay. How do you reverse the damages caused by concussions? Well, fortunately, the damages are typically reversed on the round. The concussion is a uh, an injury that heals itself. Sometimes the, the symptoms of concussion can uh, persist for long periods of time, even months and years in some rare cases. Most of the time, however, concussion will resolve on its own if it's managed properly. We've been focused mostly on sport concussions. Obviously, people get concussions in other ways, traffic accidents. They may fall, hit their head on a piece of furniture or on the floor. Is there a difference? Well, mechanically, there isn't a difference between a concussion that results uh, from another injury or one that results in a sport-related injury. But the uh, context of the injury really is significantly different. Uh, For instance, uh, there's conflicts of interest that surround the athlete. Uh, People uh, around the athlete want the athlete to get back in the game. The athlete wants to get back in the game. The parents want the athlete to get back in the game. The coach wants the athlete to get back in the game. And frequently, there's not someone there that's advocating the priority of uh, the brain health and recovery process over getting back to the game. So conflicts of interest surround the athlete. And uh, furthermore, uh, uh, the athlete uh, or the athlete's parents are either implicitly or explicitly accepting the risk of the concussion. You know, when you're, when you're walking down the street or you're uh, driving your car, you don't really think about, okay, I'm going to get injured or uh, there's a potential for me to get injured here. Uh, but when you're going into a sports uh, activity, uh, you're accepting the risk that you might get injured, and that risk uh, needs to be known. The, uh, the athletes need to know what the risk is and the parents need to know what the risk is before they enter uh, the games. One final question, Doctor. What sets your book apart from others who write about concussions? Well, you know, there's not a whole lot out there to start with, but I think that one thing that uh, sets my book apart is that it really goes to an end-to-end solution for concussion management. From preseason education, uh, to the description of what should be done in preparation for the game, what should be done during games and practices, and what to expect and what to do after concussion injury. We've been listening to Dr. Harry Karasides, the author of his book, Concussionology, Redefining Sports Concussion Management for All Levels. Doctor, what's the best way to get your book? The best way to get the book is through the major outlets like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and, of course, the Author House website, authorhouse.com. You can also go to our website at excellentbrain.com, xlntbrain.com, and uh, follow the links there. Well, thank you very much, Harry, for joining us on Author Talk. Very interesting. Thanks for having me. It was good to be here. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. 
After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children ages 24 to 18 who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Surrounded by Love. And joining me from West Virginia, or actually Virginia, in the United States of America, is author Meva J. Scarf. Welcome to the program, Meva. Thank you. This is a book that uh, I'm sure is a passion of your heart. You have uh, written many unpublished stories and have a background as a, uh, an educator and other areas related to to the written word. Uh, how did you come about to write this book, and how would you describe this to my listeners? What would you say is the type of book this is? Uh, it's a book about love, really. It's... it's um how I have been loved in my life you know I've never been treated badly or anything and uh, just a book about love that surrounds me my poetry is love based also I have poetry in the book and uh, it's it's love based about the Lord this is this is autobiographical then in its content yes sir and where did you begin to enjoy life as a child, of course, most of us do begin life as a child. But where, where were you born, and and uh, what was your upbringing? Uh, what did it involve? Uh, I was born in um, at Marshville, West Virginia. Uh, we lived in a small house, and um, I have two brothers and a sister. Um, one brother is two years younger than I, and then there was a ten-year gap, and then we had another brother and. Mother and Daddy thought it might be nice for him to have a playmate, so they had another child, and that was a sister. And um, what, was, what was the rest of your question? Well, just curious. You have written about the book and, and titled it Surrounded by Love, so apparently your family was uh, what would be considered relatively traditional in its in its style, and uh, growing up, I don't want to give away your age, but a few years ago, this is your your biographical sketch of not only you but your family. You have a lot of photos included in your book. What do you think is the importance of your book? You, I'm sure, as many of us get to a certain age, want to share our history with our family members. Was that the reason, the motivation behind it, or was there something deeper than that? Uh. I can't tell you really. I just I, I wanted to write, write about my life. That's all. And I started at the very first, the first thing I could remember, uh, and then I and then I went on from that. Um, it was just I wanted to share my life. I wanted to share what I had done. I taught school for thirty years. Uh, I had some experiences that were uh, happy, some that were sad. Um, 
And then, of course, my family has had an oil and gas business since the early 1900s, and I talked about it. And um, You even go back as far as your great-grandmother, Johnson. Share yes. a little of her history. I'm sure that that was a unique time to be living as well. Yes, it was. Uh, yes, I, I went over and spent nights with her and just had so much fun with her. Um, tried to sleep in her house. It was very hard because she had clocks all over the house. <laughs> they would bong and, you know, ring at different times. And then there was a train that would go by and blow the whistle all the time. You know how they blow for like, crossings. And I didn't get much sleep. But uh, she thought it was because I had played too hard the day before. <laughs> you know, she... But... Uh, and now, wh- I talk about my great-grandmother. She was a really sweet person. What, were they also from West Virginia, or did they? were they, like many of the early settlers of the United States, from another country? What is your heritage there? No, they were from West Virginia. I think I'm Scotch-Irish. Um, I, I don't know, but I just I think perhaps I am. And uh, all of my... I had another great-grandmother um, who lived until I was probably uh, in my in my 20 I was 25 mm-hmm. and um, I had uh, I had a great grandfather who was um, lived until he was 97 which Super. is a little odd that was you know that was years ago that is unusual for years ago hundred in the 159 pages was there a lot of detail that you had to research or was this all from personal memory that you shared your stories it was all from personal memory incredible my memory my wife asked me in the in the afternoon what I did that that morning and I can't remember so that is a wonderful gift you have well uh, I'm sorry. Go no, on. that's that is. I'm, I'm just. I'm amazed at at individuals who have that ability to recollect histories and details as as you have. Mm-hmm. Well, I like I said, my my memory of the past is very good. My memory of today is not good. Uh, I think I'm getting what you call it, dementia or something because <laughs> I don't remember yesterday really well like I should have. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we're both in the same category. Then I have uh, I have reached uh, at thirty nine years old, and I'm older than that actually. And uh, my my memory has begun to slip. The one thing I do remember from my early days and what I could recount, I guess, as a child, was I've been confused ever since the first day when the clock on the wall was upside down, and it just I just never did rationalize why that was so. Um, you have uh, any any stories in here that you think will transcend just the family history that are stories that will inspire others perhaps well I don't know uh, I I did write a story about a boy that I taught um, who was um, came from very poor background his, his, he, he had just didn't have good parents as far as they, you know they just weren't taking him taking care of him well but at any rate he came into the class uh, in first grade, he came in two years and would run away. Hmm. So he didn't really get seated until he was like the third year. So he was like six and eight, probably eight or nine years old in first grade. I had him when he was 14 in sixth grade. He couldn't read or write very well, but he could surely draw. And uh, I told him, I said, Mark, if, um, 
if you will draw me a picture of something that we have talked about in the class, I'll give you a grade on that. And that's how I graded that boy to get him through sixth grade. Um, but and the story is, beg your pardon? I was going to ask if there's a long-term history or, or uh, what developed in his life. Yes. there. Is, well, he didn't have a real long life because uh. his uh, he got married, had a couple girls, and his family all were uh, vacationing or something at a place. And there had been some drinking. Mark wasn't drinking. He had been he had been someplace else. He came back and he was tired. He went to bed. And an uncle, I don't know, or not an uncle, a brother-in-law, got a gun, went back and shot him in oh, the head. Ouch. And then his wife heard the noise and went running back, and he turned around and shot her too. So that you know that was really very bad. And uh, you have so, you you have recounted then many things, the ups and downs of not only being a teacher, but someone who shared love with others uh, in yes. in the uh, filial relationship of being a teacher and educator. Your family members, you have photos, and you also have included poetry in your book. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how important is poetry to you? Are you still writing poetry? Yes, I write it from time to time. It's real important to me. And I, you know, it's funny. I think poetry ought to rhyme. But you you see, poetry nowadays has no rhyming words at all. It's just it's just like writing normal letter, <laughs> and I, that's not poetry to me. You you also mentioned church, and I will tell you that I am a church attending guy, and uh, I find that same dissatisfaction with some of the music that is supposed to be poetry. There's no poetic uh, no poetic uh, connection at all to what's being sung. Uh, I have that same frustration in that arena. Uh, poetry is important to you. Uh, have you decided or have you thought about perhaps sharing just a book of poetry in the future? No, I hadn't thought about it. I, I haven't written a whole lot of poetry, but no, I haven't thought about writing a book about it. Um, what do you think people will take away from reading Surrounded by Love and find the most rewarding about the read? Uh, probably stuff about my family, my husband. Um, he had an old bronc. I wrote about that. Uh, the bronc had, uh, had chains on all the tires, and uh, he put up aluminum doors on it, and it really didn't have any brakes. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, but he would take it up on the hill, and uh, we had a lot of pines up, Christmas tree like pines, and he would go up on the hill and cut pines for people. And uh, he used to bring us down the hill, and we would get to a certain place where it was pretty, it was pretty steep, and then he'd go down that steep part, and of course we screamed the whole way down. You know, he did had a lot of fun with the bronc. Oh my! And uh, yeah, he. He would uh, hook something to it and drag the kids around in the snow, you know. One time we took it to, um, we had to go to the grocery store, and it was a really, really deep snow. We couldn't get out in our car, so we took the Bronx and didn't have a license on it, so we went the back way. And um, the kids, the boys were in the back, all covered up with blankets and all, and we Along the way, we saw a man walking. He His car had stopped, and he was trying to walk to Marshville. And uh, so we stopped and asked him if he'd like a ride, and he said, yes, he got in the back with the boys. 
and we went on around to Marshall and let him off. And I said, I bet he was frozen to death, but the boys were snuggling together, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so anyway, we did that, and he um, one time took the bronc up on the hill beside of my kid's trailer, and uh, I, I, he left it in some kind of a gear, I think, because, like I said, it had no brakes. And when he went back, he thought that he'd be able to put it in second gear real quick right. and go down the hill. <laughs> well, he didn't get it into second gear. It just went down the hill flying. Ooh. And uh, I guess my son-in-law looked out the window, and he said, uh, Missy, he says, come here. There goes your dad down the hill playing a, um, well, what was it, Jim? A Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> 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 you ha yes, you have you have uh, recounted your family history, and the Martini family and the Sharp family are interconnected, mm -hmm. and uh, have uh, shared that in 159 pages of uh, of storytelling. In fact, you have listed as much as you can, and I don't know how you were able to do that, but listed your your family lineage at least as far back as you can remember that's wonderfully done as well the book should be of interest to anyone that's been an educator or has an interest in family history the title of the book again is surrounded by love my guest from west virginia i'm sorry virginia in the united <laughs> states meva j scarf meva where do we get copies of your book uh at author house which is the publisher or uh barnes and noble Possibly, um, if they carry it. I don't know. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But Barnes & Noble would handle, handle it. Too. Sure. They can also request it from their local bookseller, and they can order their own copy yes, the, by can. asking it by title, Surrounded by Love. And mm -hmm. the author, Meva J. Scarf. Scarf is spelled S-C-A-R-N-F-F. Thank you, Meva, mm -hmm. for joining me today, sharing your story. Thank you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.